Hi there and welcome to the Still Loading podcast, a space dedicated to exploring leadership for the digital age. I'm your host, Ilona Brannan, and I'm so excited to be here with you. Let's get started. Hi everyone, it's Ilona here and I'm delighted to give you this episode from a conversation that I had with Shane Wallace, who is the CEO of Culture Smith. He is a leadership development expert as well and he works with lots of clients doing the work of developing leaders. I think for me, with this conversation, what I really took away from it was the idea about servant leadership being so important, especially in the digital world. Now, servant leadership is when a leader puts their team and thinks about the development and sort of support that the team needs first, right? So it's not necessarily about command and control, which is where you tell the team everything that you need to do. It's about enabling the team and empowering the team to be able to succeed with what they need to achieve as a team. One of the things he mentioned was about emotional burnout. And I remember when I was leading my team during the pandemic and when the pandemic hit, as as I'm sure everybody did, it was quite a scary thing. Right. And I was feeling, you know, worried for myself and for my team and for the company because everything was a bit in flux and we weren't sure what was going to happen. And I definitely took that role of making sure that the team was empowered and they knew what they needed to do. But I also took on the emotional responsibility of the team and I burnt out because I was carrying almost too much. And I think because we were so remote as well, that was kind of part of the thing that exacerbated that feeling because I had to kind of actively check in with people. It's not like they're next to me in an office. I have to actually go and reach out and just make sure things are scheduled. I see them, etc. But you're also dealing with the day to day of the working world. And so Shane, in this conversation, he spoke about the need for building resilience in a leader so you can handle these things, but also really to understand the emotional emotional sort of drain it can have and being able to manage that successfully so not overdoing it and overexpending the reason I think that's so valuable to understand is because with the digital world it's kind of less obvious and it almost feels like right okay I've slotted everything in and I've ticked the boxes etc but are you filling up your own cup as a leader are you making sure you're not overextending yourself I know plenty of people that said that they kind of worked more when working from home because you know that the lines get blurry so it becomes a, a real important lesson for a leader to think about their own emotional needs how they can stay resilient what works for them so things that worked for me were going for a walk making sure I had that as part of my day and making sure I switched off from screens in the evening but it took a while to get there and understand that so it's a really really good episode I hope you enjoy it I really did I learned a lot from Shane and I'll speak to you soon I am really delighted today to welcome Shane Wallace, who is the CEO of CultureSmith, and he is based in Calgary in Canada. So we've got a bit of an international vibe going on here. And I reached out to Shane because I saw a post that he did on LinkedIn, and I loved what he was saying about it. So Shane, could you introduce yourself to the listeners? Yes, thank you. My name is Shane Wallace. I am the founder and CEO of CultureSmith. So we are a corporate culture and leadership consultancy, as you say, based out of Calgary, Alberta, Canada. We have been in business since around 2007. And our focus is with what we refer to as scale-ups. So organizations that are kind of around that 50 employee mark and up uh, between 50 and about 250 employees. We say we we are how teams stay teams. We are what allows those, those companies to go from 50 to 250 without imploding. Yeah. And I think that's a really pivotal moment that I've seen because I work with startups in the in the London sort of startup scale up scene. And it's interesting between that 50 people mark and that 250 mark, you start to see like breaks happen and almost like mini mm-hmm. tribes happen. It'd be great if you could describe some of the work that you're doing with your clients at the moment. Yeah, what you've identified is is absolutely what we experience. And that is sort of the sweet spot because those organizations are they're big enough that they're having collisions on a daily basis, collisions of personality and ego and all of those good things, but they're still small enough that a meaningful change in leadership can cascade down through the entire organization. They're still rehabable, for lack of a better word, 
where when we get into some of the larger organizations that have built a bit of a dysfunctional culture, it's it's a full teardown rebuild. And that's just not really the type of work that we're interested in doing. No, that's more um, requiring extra equipment, I think. <laughs> right. Very much so. Yeah. I'm interested in this area too, because in terms of growth of new companies, and especially say in my sector, which is more the tech scene, you can see the impact very quickly a great leader or a poor leader can have on the team and on the scalability of this tech startup as it goes and scales. And there have been some cases in the past, like I, I think a really classic example is like WeWork, where this leadership sort of like overinflated the valuation and actually it wasn't functioning at all internally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're 100% right. Gallup produced a study a few years ago that shows up to 70% of an employee's commitment level is 100% correlated to their relationship with their direct leader. That's why we choose to focus at that level. It, it just gives leverage and scale. And if you can get the tone at the top right, again, it models the behavior that you want across the entire organization. Like I've been watching the, the Apple We Crashed show. And it's interesting because companies like that, there's, there's sort of two things when it comes to culture. You can have what is called a highly crystallized culture or a highly intense culture. WeWork would be considered a highly intense culture where those that buy into the values and the culture of the organization do so with such passion that they'll literally fight anybody that is against the values of the culture. So it, it, we kind of joke it puts the cult in culture. A highly crystallized culture is the type where you could go and ask anybody within the organization, you could sample a highly diverse population of talent across the culture, what the organization stands for, what its mission and purpose are, and you would get a very consistent answer. And so intense cultures can, can go bad in a hurry. They can develop those unethical climates that, and and groupthink, right? With with nobody there to challenge those values without that diversity of thought, it can go bad in a real, real hurry. Yeah, especially I think with things being exacerbated in a remote context. What I've seen and experienced with my clients is culture can be very adversely affected by not being physically in the room together. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like it then gets magnified when it's all remote because the worst behaviors kind of get epitomized. How can you mitigate against that risk that you've worked with your clients about? Because I mean, I imagine in Canada anyway, remote working is just something that's always happened because of the sheer size of the country. Well, it's interesting. I mean, with the pandemic uh, here in, in Calgary, anyways, we're a pretty traditional city in that we've got a downtown core that everybody would come into. You know, 70% of the population in Calgary's downtown core is only here between Monday and Friday. And then they disperse out into the suburbs. And the pandemic really changed that where remote work wasn't really a thing here until the pandemic. And so our clients are now just wrestling with these issues for the first time, especially now here anyways, the government has removed all restrictions. So a lot of our leaders are really wrestling with, do we mandate a return to office? What is that going to mean in terms of engagement? Are we going to have mass turnover if we do that? And so these are the issues that we're, we're helping leaders wrestle with every single day. And unfortunately, there is no one size fits all. From a strict, strict organizational psychology viewpoint, we are big proponents of in-office. We recognize that remote work is a reality. But for a lot of the reasons that you've identified, the two big ones being, it's really hard to convey a sense of belonging if you are not physically in the same space. And belonging is pretty much the be-all and end-all when it comes to building a healthy culture. Mm-hmm. And then from a productivity standpoint, a phenomenon known as social loafing tends to increase when we're not physically sitting next to each other, right? I'm having a bad day, but I see the person next to me hustling. It makes it that much easier for me to get over myself and start hustling too, where when I don't have that, it is easier to go grab that remote and watch Netflix and promise myself it's only going to be for 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that term, social loafing. That makes me yeah. giggle. <laughs> From your website and your value proposition, you're real massive fans and proponents of servant leadership. So how do you do that work with your clients? I mean, first of all, for those who don't know, what is servant leadership? Then how do you do that with your clients? Sure. Servant leadership as as sort of a treatise was originally proposed by a gentleman named Robert Greenleaf back in 1970, 
who just sort of felt that the push for profit was doing was not only creating harm within organizations but was was creating harm within our cities and our communities outside of it leadership at the time was was very extractive people would come in and organizations would harvest their willpower and their emotional resources in service of the company and send sort of a a shell of a shell of people back home uh, into their communities and into their homes and so issues of divorce and depression and and mental health issues he saw a direct correlation between those and the way we were treating people at work mm-hmm. and so servant leadership is basically reversing the flow a servant leader's primary focus is the growth and development of those they lead and so the thought is that i'm going to invest in my employees well-being i'm going to invest in their skills and abilities my mandate is going to be to create the best possible version of every person that reports to me and my company's going to benefit by default that when i have the absolute best version of every single person on my team doing that work is going to fill their cup better versions of them will show up better version that performance is going to go up so it's basically a, almost like a reverse of polarity in in leadership the actual functional way to do it is it comes down to basically three things one is understanding the building blocks of trust so where a leader is going to build trust between themselves and those they lead a servant leader is going to build those bonds of trust between members of the team so rather than me trying to get you to trust me as your leader i'm actually going to get you to trust the people on your team Right so it's not building trust with my followers it's building trust between my followers that's number 1 number 2 is then distributing power so even though there is a leader that is running the team that leader is very cognizant of the power that they hold and so it's empowering everybody else to make decisions to contribute to feel as though they have some emotional skin in the game and then the third and final is autonomy is creating autonomy within teams again empowering people to make decisions and allowing them to make mistakes putting them in positions actually to make mistakes but then using those mistakes as an opportunity to accelerate growth and learning as opposed to using those mistakes as an excuse to punish people yeah i really think that that bit around getting you to trust your team mm-hmm. and facilitating that right that's really important and and hard and hard yeah of course and the hardest bit probably and also you would then trust your leader because of that behavior anyway because of what they're doing because it's trying to build the team dynamic rather than their own sense of importance and things like that i can see how that could work yeah yeah with the work that you're doing currently with your clients what are sort of the challenges that you're seeing when you're doing this work with them especially you know bearing in mind you know the last couple of years with the pandemic and as you're saying all of your clients kind of having to learn how to do this remote working and remote leadership on the hoof there's numerous evidence-based and peer-reviewed studies that show how effective servant leadership is it's one of the most effective forms of leadership the challenge is it's also one of the most emotionally draining when your job is to meet the needs of your followers and you have a bunch of different followers all with very diverse needs it can be a very very exhausting proposition to try and meet all of those needs and so this is why the the culture smithing work and the, where the word culture smith even comes from is first creating an organizational structure that has deep deep psychological safety in it so that people do not fear reprisal they can actually be vulnerable and authentic to state what their needs are to the leader and then also growing the emotional intelligence of each individual person so that they can self-regulate their behavior have enough self-awareness to recognize when they are triggered what the triggers are all of these things basically reduce some of the emotional burden so that the leader is now shaping and guiding the team's efforts as opposed to dictating them and how can a leader sort of mitigate against that burnout especially digitally and remotely what do you advise them it's really difficult there's three things and the first is having really really clear standards and having those standards cascade down 
from some sort of mission or purpose. So understand servant leadership is really not going to work in an organization unless it's Mm purpose-driven because everything is going to, again, cascade down from that central purpose. And so if I know what the purpose of the organization is, and I've been taught what the standards of behavior are, and that how deviating from those standards are going to take us away from mission and purpose, we now have a, a way of giving and receiving feedback where we're just reconciling it against the standard. So providing feedback is a critical component of servant leadership and giving and receiving feedback is one of the most psychologically triggering things in the workplace. It is, isn't it? Why is that? Well, there's, there's a couple of components to it. Harvard Business Review did a study on it back in 2017, I think it was, and they showed where it's a bit of a paradox because we do not like giving feedback providing somebody with feedback is up to four times more psychologically triggering than receiving feedback. Yet we crave feedback. So we will talk ourselves into not giving somebody feedback because we will assume they're going to be defensive. We're going to, we'll assume we're going to hurt their feelings. And this is all narrative fallacy. These are all stories that we tell ourselves as individuals so that we don't have to go through what we believe is going to be an awkward experience. Now, Where we have found the majority of that awkwardness comes from is ambiguity, is if there are no clear standards, then the feedback that I'm giving you is derived from my opinion. And I don't want my opinion challenged. I don't want to be told that I'm being too harsh or too critical or too negative. Where if we have this unified standard, all I'm saying is, look, here's the standard and here's the three degrees you're deviating from it. You can then get to the other two components of giving effective feedback, which are belief and care. So here's the standard. You're not currently at the standard, but I believe you can get there. And I care enough about you to point it out. And if we can convey those three things over and over and over again, you will start to see people magically meet these standards. Their performance will be corrected because you're creating true accountability instead of blame. Mm. And that psychological safety comes in really important as well. It is the most important. In fact, I don't know if you're familiar with Project Aristotle, but when Google ran Project Aristotle, psychological safety came out as the number one contributing factor to success. The challenge is, again, not a lot of people know, okay, well, what are the nuts and bolts of that? How do I actually build psychological safety within my team? Sounds like a great concept. But how do I build it? How do I actually go through this? What are the steps? And also, I guess the challenge now is how do you build that psychological safety remotely? Yeah. So the fundamentals of building safety haven't changed from in-person to remote. It's just the mediums that we're using. Modality. Yeah, at a huge complication. We just have to be more intentional about it. And what sorts of things build psychological safety? We break it down to three. The first one is a shared identity. So if you know what the company stands for and you actually see yourself as part of that. So the analogy I use all the time is if you or anybody that you know is a a fan of a sports franchise or a musical act. So let's, let's just say a sports franchise and you're vacationing halfway around the world and you're at a resort and you see somebody walk through the lobby and they're wearing the jersey or the hat of your favorite team, you're automatically going to feel a sense of kinship with that person Mm -hmm. because they're advertising to you that you are part of the same social group. This is known as social identity theory. So the first step in building safety is is establishing that social identity theory. What what are the behaviors that we would engage in on a day-to-day basis as members of this culture? What is the equivalent of wearing the hat and the jersey to show that I'm a fan? How do I give and receive feedback? How do I respond to chaos? How do I respond to pressure? These behaviors that I engage in tell everybody else within the organization that we have a shared social identity. We are part of the same tribe. And so once you have that established, that shared identity, the next step is then feedback, is being able to build the feedback that shows people when they're straying from the tribe, right? So it's referred to as in-group versus out-group behavior. The in-group behaviors are very, very clearly identified. Here's how I show I'm a member of the group. But what's actually more important in our experience is quantifying the out-group behaviors. 
so that you can tell somebody, hey, you're actually engaging in behavior that is pulling away from the group, pulling away from the tribe and being able to recognize and give them that feedback as early as possible so that they can course correct and come back into the fold, which leads to the third and final one is the ability to have effective conflict. Yeah. And often overlooked, right? It's a good thing. You need healthy debate to get to the right outcome. Well, and healthy is the key word. So the analogy that we use there is, is to think of conflict like it's cholesterol, <laughs> right? There is, there is both healthy and unhealthy forms of cholesterol. One type of cholesterol, right? LDL mm-hmm. creates blockages in your arteries. You need to lower that where HDL actually removes blockages from the artery. Well, from a conflict standpoint, it's known as the difference between task-based and relationship-based conflict. Relationship-based conflict is unhealthy. It creates blockages within the team or task-based conflict, which is constant healthy debate over the goal and content of the work of the team. That's actually essential. It removes blockages. And so what we have found is that the teams that have the lowest levels of psychological safety actually have the lowest levels of conflict, which is a bit paradoxical. You would think that a team with a lot of safety would be more harmonious, but it's, it's actually the opposite. Teams that have low levels of safety, they're, they have the highest levels of conflict avoidance. They're afraid that if they have conflict, it's going to tear the entire team apart. So they talk themselves out of having the conflict. Where teams that have high, high levels of psychological safety have that belief that we can have as much conflict as possible and it's not going to cause the team to fall apart because nobody's being judged for having the conflict. Everybody knows the conflict is coming from the best of intentions. It is to make the organization better. It is to further the purpose and mission. Yeah, that's really interesting. And also the thing, you know, like that people forget is even if you're not having the conflict, you're thinking it, you're probably like acting differently because of it. And that in itself becomes a behavior that exacerbates the situation because I see that with remote working in particular. I don't want to cause an argument. I don't want to have that conversation because we're, we're remote working. But then that affects the way I interact with that individual in a remote context, in any context, but especially a remote one, because you have to be more intentional with your communication. It's not like you'll just bump into each other into the office and having a cup of tea. You have to be quite intentional with your communication structures when working remotely. Well, you bring up a really critical point because you're 100% right. So it's not that you don't have the conflict. You have the conflict. You just don't have it with the other person. <laughs> you have it in your own head. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's narrative fallacy. Is, you, is you, you run a script as to how that conversation went and you replay it over and over and over again in your head. Now, there's a problem with that because when it comes to recollection, your brain will actually struggle to tell the difference between that phantom conversation you've repeated and replayed over and over again. Enough time passes to your brain, that conversation actually happened. It's going to view it as almost identical to an actual conversation that happened. And so all of these biases and beliefs and animosity start getting rooted within the team. And that's why we need to have these micro conflicts on a daily basis to prevent narrative fallacy from taking over. Mm, That's really interesting. For all of you listening in the remote work world, this is something I think you should study and think about really putting in your teams. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I'd love to move a little bit, shift a little bit to you. Okay. Let's talk about you now. It's probably the moment where you put like the mood lighting on, but basically (laughs) tell us a little bit about a leader that influenced you in your own development. You know what? It's an interesting question and I might be cheaping out here, but I, I would honestly say... Robert Greenleaf, even though I I don't know the gentleman, I've never met him, but I launched my first company in my mid-20s. And so I didn't really have a lot of leaders, you know, unless I go back to teachers that I had in school that I, you know, that I admired. But I would probably say Greenleaf just because he was so ahead of his time in terms of his view and philosophy when it comes to leadership. It was inspiring and, and has been impactful enough for me that I've I've built an entire practice around trying to further his his mission and message. Yeah, I, I, like I say, I feel it's a bit of a cop out answer, but I'm going to go with him. What would you say to him if you could? I'm assuming he's passed away now. Yeah, he has, and and I mean, the Greenleaf Institute continues to run and and promote servant leadership. You know what? I I guess it would be how he stuck with it because it, like his ideas were were considered 
radical at the time. I mean, even I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the Jim Collins book, Good to Great, the philosophy of level five leadership. What's interesting is that many of the principles of level five leadership within Good to Great are servant leadership. It's just when Jim Collins' research team looked at it, they felt that servant leadership was too soft of a term. And that if they put servant leadership in the book, the book would get rejected. And so, wow, level five leadership, this sounds like something to aspire to and, and we're going to build up to. And so I'm, I'm just curious how it was that he managed to, to stick to this philosophy when there really wasn't a lot of empirical data to back it up. None of the academic community was supporting or investigating it. None of the organizational psychologists of the era were committing to running studies on it. It, it was just sort of considered this sort of phantom theory. I would love to know how he managed to stick to his principles, what it was that he saw that allowed him to have the conviction to stick with and promote something that that I think is just now kind of having its day in the sun. Yeah, because as you said, there's a lot of research now that proves the, the the idea, yeah. Yeah, and it's all really come out in the past decade. You know, we had 30, 40 years of this theory kicking around before people started taking it seriously. That's a long time. It is. It is, although, well, and especially in technology terms, that's like 400 years yeah. in comparison. And it's amazing to think how far we've come in 10 years in, in many ways. I was reflecting on that this morning when I went for my walk our ideas going quicker because we communicate more or at least assimilate more information and communicate. I'd say that loosely because I'm not sure sometimes if we do communicate properly or not because everything's now reduced to a really pithy, like well-worded like tweet or something. Through the whole of human progress, you know, ideas came and they did change things, but it didn't change it at such a pace. But in the last 10, 15 years, there's many, many more ideas. Like even watching you know, a film from the 80s, you watch it and you're like, is this the Dark Ages? <laughs> you know, it's just totally different. So I imagine what the next 10 years is going to hold. It's quite fascinating. Absolutely. I'd love to know about something that happened to you on your own leadership development journey that sort of helped you to become a better leader. My background um, is in the recruiting world. And so that's that's where I began my career. You were one of the good ones. That's okay. <laughs> I, I don't know about that. <laughs> and so it, the one unique thing that that afforded me was sort of this vicarious exposure to thousands of bad bosses. Yeah. Because, you know, the old adage that people don't quit companies, they quit their boss. And so when you're interviewing half a dozen job seekers a day for years on end, and you're hearing these stories of, well, here's the way my leader is acting. Here's why I'm leaving. My leader's taking credit for my work. My leader is not communicating effectively, like all of these different things. As much as there was a lot, a lot of people that we would have interviewed and a lot of different answers to those questions, they would all fall into three or four main categories. And so it just sort of created a aggregate of what a dysfunctional leader looks like. And at the same time, created this relatively simple framework on how to avoid becoming one. Because I don't think anybody sets out to be a crappy leader. I don't think anybody has that intention. I think it, it happens accidentally. It happens inadvertently. And I think it's the compound effect of a bunch of really, really poor decisions at key points that force you to make even worse decisions later. Again, I, I wasn't really exposed to any great leaders and I wasn't really exposed to any poor leaders in my own career because my time as an employee was so short before I launched my own firm. But being exposed to them through job seekers was, was probably the most pivotal thing. I wonder if the reasons why someone is a rubbish leader now are the same. Yeah, I think some of them are. I think some of them are universal. I mean, you've already identified one of them. It's communication. There's been a collective shift. I actually put a post out on LinkedIn about it today. Like when you think of what your boss's 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 boss needed from you, it was blind obedience and brute force. If, if your job was to put down as many railway ties as possible before the end of the day, your boss's 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 boss needed human beings that were widgets. Free will makes for very poor human widgets. Yeah. Right. And so the the tools of the trade back then were public rec reprimands and forced rankings and 
you know, all of these different things. And I think it's like anything, it takes a couple of generations to unlearn that. If you're a leader today and what you need out of your people, you need creativity, you need collaboration, you need innovation. When the value proposition to your company is no longer, we can put down more railway ties than our competitor, but your value proposition is, no, we've actually, we're going to create something that makes trains obsolete. You're not going to get that by bullying your people, right? You have to be creating psychological safety. You have to be fostering emotional intelligence. You need the creative abrasion that comes from effective conflict. Yeah. I just wish that all the leaders got the memo, but you're right. It's that inherited framework, if you like. A long time ago, in another lifetime, I used to be a teacher. And in a sense, you were always modeling your experience of education onto the education system. No matter what age you are, you're like, oh, I went through education, so therefore it's like this. And it's like education had moved on by the time I became a teacher. It was no longer the paradigm I'd experienced. And it's similar with, with leadership. Yeah, I definitely saw this in with a former colleague. She'd been treated terribly by a leader, and so she felt it was appropriate to treat others terribly because that was the model she'd seen. And it's not like she was doing it, as you say, I think on purpose, but if that is the model you've seen of shouting at people or making them feel scared or kind of telling them off, like you're going to be like, well, what's the problem? I saw that this happened to me. This is how I got to be at this level. Yeah. So we've seen it like, this is what I went through and I turned out great. And we've also seen, I had to pay my dues and now it's your turn. Flawed thinking. So when I'm counseling leaders on this, I actually use that to sort of create a contrast for them and let them know there are two types of leaders. There are those who are going to stay leaders and those who won't. There are winners and losers. I'm not asking you to join the herd. Let the other leaders lead that way. Let the turnover and the animosity and all of the dysfunction live within your competitors. I will argue that the next decade, we are going to see the biggest corporate wealth transfer in history, and it's going to be due to talent migration. You're going to see people switching jobs at a rate faster than any other point in history. And what is going to attract them to the right organizations is the culture and the leadership. And so if you want to bring individuals over and you want to be able to unlock the best possible version of them, therefore creating wealth and value within your company, you have to change your leadership style. You're not going to get it with a leadership style that was extinct 20 years ago. No matter how comfortable it may be for you, no matter how easy it may be to model the behavior that you saw from your leaders, it does not work anymore. Full stop. Yeah, just a simple example that you said about the railway versus the technology we have today. They require completely different skill sets. Yeah. Dr. Amy Evanson, who's sort of the biggest pioneer when it comes to psychological safety, in her book, In the Fearless Organizations, she shows where employees at all levels collaborate at 50%, 50% more than at any point in human history. That everything that we value in the modern economy is a product of teamwork. And your job as a leader is to be able to motivate, to create that teamwork, to build those bonds of trust between your people and motivate them to go beyond what they think is possible. But you can't do both of those from a place of fear. You can get people to react to fear. You can get people to work really hard as a result of fear, but it's not sustainable. And it's not going to foster collaboration. It's not going to foster teamwork. It's going gonna, it's gonna to foster the opposite. And as we saw with the pandemic, with the fear thing, mm -hmm. many people, because I, I work in strategy, and many people said how they couldn't think strategically mm -hmm. at the very beginning of the pandemic. And they looked into it. And it's because your prefrontal cortex, if you're fearful and worried about what's happening, you can't imagine anything other than, than the situation that you're currently in because it shuts down because it's trying to protect you going, we're in a scary situation. So you can't think of anything that exists yeah. beyond what's happening to you. Yeah. It's uh, referred to as an amygdala hijack and yeah, our brain was designed to protect us from physical threats. The problem is thanks to the advancement of society, we've eliminated 99.9% .9 of the physical threats the brain was designed to protect us from over the past 10,000 years. 
we just haven't swapped out the hardware. We still have a threat detection machine in our skulls. It just now picks up emotional threats with the same veracity that it used to pick up physical threats and has you respond in kind. This is why email can ruin your entire day. How would you, well, you know, if someone does receive an email that throws them off for the day, mm-hmm. you must get that from leaders like, oh, I need to stop myself reacting to all these things. What do you advise your leaders to help them sort of stay grounded? Well, that's that's where emotional intelligence comes in. So when we teach emotional intelligence, we focus on three components, self-awareness, self-regulation, and empathy. So if you look at any dysfunctional behavior within the workplace, it can get tied back to one of those three things. Somebody is engaging in undesired behavior. They either don't know that that behavior is poor or they don't know they're doing it. Issue of self-awareness. They know they're doing it, but they can't help themselves. Issue of self-regulation. Or they know they're doing it. They could help themselves. They just don't feel they should have to. An issue of empathy. Now, the challenge with emotional intelligence, so it's the only element of human personality that can actually be taught, but it is like fitness. You have to put in the sets and reps on a daily basis. We start with self-awareness. We use a a behavioral, a four-color behavioral system that teaches people, why did that email bother me? What is it about that email? Kind of our shorthand is, if you're hysterical, it's historical. I heard that on Queer Eye. (laughs) Yeah, like there's, all it is is an email. It's not a physical threat. And if it's causing this much emotion in you, you got to reflect on why. What is it reminding you of? What pattern is your brain picking up? And then the self-regulation is, okay, I can control my response. So so it will forever bother me. I will forever be triggered by that based on my profile. However, I can control how I respond to being triggered. And the empathy piece just needs to be the motivation. If I'm part of an organization where I do recognize that I am a corporate citizen of this organization, I am a member of the tribe, then putting the needs of others ahead of my own becomes the primary motivation, enough motivation to go through the awkward, really painful work of growing your emotional intelligence, because it is not easy. It's like physically trying to transform your body. It's a lot of hard work. And it's a lot of hard work where the gains you are making are imperceptible on a day-to-day basis. You go have a workout, you look in the mirror, you see zero change and you say, well, this isn't working. It isn't until you can hold the before and after pictures up six months apart that you actually get that visual feedback that this is working. Emotional intelligence is the same thing. You have to commit to the grind, to the daily sets and reps, the emotional push-ups in order to get the growth. That's also why we teach it at a company level, because it's a whole lot easier for me to do those emotional push-ups when I see everybody on the team attempting to do them too. I think the emotional intelligence bit, especially in this digital age, that's going to be the game changer. An organization that has an emotional intelligence like investment. It will be. That's going to be the differentiator in the market. It won't necessarily be your value proposition. It will be how emotionally intelligent are your teams, are your people, are your leaders? And then how well can they communicate that to the market? Well, and you can scale that digitally as well. Like one quick example. So within our system, again, we use four colors. One of the colors is a red. Okay. A red is incredibly results oriented. They are direct and to the point. And so, for example, arguing with a red is the greatest kindness you can show them. Because if a red needs to engage in small talk, If a red is not allowed to debate because it's frowned upon, it's viewed as rude or inconsiderate, they're actually going away triggered. So in the digital world that we're in now, if I send an email to a red that is a giant brick of text, I've actually triggered them. I've caused their emotional intelligence to dip. Where once you learn this, you can know, okay, I need to be more brief, not only in the message, but in the medium. This email could and should have been a text message. That's the kindness I'm because if I'm triggering people less, they are investing less emotional bandwidth in becoming untriggered. Yeah. And then they can do their best work and return the favor to me. Where if my profile is yellow or green, that actually needs communication, needs exchange, that red can muster enough emotional energy to get out of their office 
and walk down the hall if you are physically working together and ask somebody the question when it's easier for the red to just shoot a text message or get on a team's call or whatever. Are you self-aware of what your needs are? Are you aware of what everybody else's needs are? And can you regulate your behavior to meet other people at their level? I think that's really interesting. I'd love for you to share the story that you told me about you developing your emotional intelligence thanks to your lovely daughter. Oh, yeah, Ash. We we try to practice what we preach um, here at CultureSmith. And so obviously we're trying to build feedback-centric cultures. It may sound a bit bizarre, but my wife and I, we have five kids and I have my wife and all five of my kids do 360 reviews on me twice a year. Because the kids, we started this practice when the kids were relatively young. Ashlyn at the time was eight. She's 15 now. So we use a start-stop-continue framework. Give me one thing that you need me to start doing as your dad that I'm not doing. Give me one thing I am doing as your dad you want me to stop doing. And give me something that you want me to keep doing as your dad that I'm doing really, really well. And the kind of communication to the kids is you're not going to get everything that's on your list, but you will get a conversation about everything you put on the list. And so there was one that jumped out a couple of years ago that I still carry with me in my wallet to this day where under the stop, my one daughter said, you need to stop lying to me when you tell me that my art projects look good. You don't lie all the time, but I can tell when you're lying. I can tell when you like it and I can tell when you're lying. Just be honest. And so when I got that feedback, I said, okay, so you say you can tell the difference. What is, what's the difference? When am I lying? When am I not? And she said, well, when you like something I've made, you'll ask me a lot of questions about it. You'll ask me why I chose crayon or paint or why it's on paper or canvas. And you'll just, you'll ask me a lot of questions where if you don't like it, you'll say, oh, that looks really good, sweetie. And you'll go off and do something else. And so I said, okay, well, that's, it's not, that has nothing to do with your art. It, that's my level of presence. So what this means, the feedback that I'm getting is that I'm not showing up present. That those critical first 15, 20 minutes that I see you at the end of the day, a lesser version of me is what's walking through the door at night. So I took that feedback to my team the next day and shared it with them and said, we have to take a look at my job. We have to take a look at what's going on here. Um, what are the factors that are contributing to me, a lesser, a low EQ version of me going home at a critical time where I need to be peaking at six o'clock when I get home, not cratering. That investigation led to, we had a bunch of clients we shouldn't have had. We were doing work that was not fulfilling. It was just paying the bills. And it led to us firing between 50 to 70% of our clients over the next six months and completely retooling the business. Because I recognize, no, being home and being present is more important than that. You know, I'd love to say that we had the foresight at the time that it was going to get us to where we are now, where we've got a lot of really well-aligned clients that are as purpose-aligned as we are and working with them is what makes us happy. But it was, there was a lot of fear there. It was a huge gamble. It's just when push came to shove, to be blunt, a, a crappy client it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth missing out on those. Like I said, she's, she was eight, she's 15, seven years have gone by since then. It's not long before she's not going to be there at the end of the day when I walk through the door. And I love, I loved what we talked about before about this whole thing around working with your clients to bring that peak experience. So when you go home, you're at peak. Can you explain that to our listeners so they get what we're talking about? Yeah, it kind of comes back to our purpose, our vision, our mission. Our vision is that we live in a world where people go to work to become renewed and fulfilled, not depleted. That by engaging in meaningful work and working alongside individuals who are working on their emotional intelligence right along with us, that again, we're peaking at the end of the day. Our companies are helping send back the best possible version of us. So many organizations right now, and, and with good reason, are concerned about their carbon footprint and are doing all sorts of work to lessen their environmental impact. Well, we just happen to think organizations should be doing more around focusing on their emotional footprint. 
right? What are they doing to reduce the emotional impact they are having on employees? And that's what we're trying to help them do. And then, I mean, isn't that amazing? You can go home at the end of the day and be jazzed, you know, so happy and pumped because you had a great, fulfilling, you know, productive day where you feel like you contributed and you fulfilled your purpose and you're taking the best self to your home. Absolutely. And then, I mean, when it comes to some of the hard and fast things that we get hired to do, like employee retention and hiring, like those things are going to make your organization sticky and have people want to stay with you far more than an extra 5,000 bucks in pay or nap pods and beanbag chairs put in your break room. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's almost priceless, isn't it? Being able to create that sort of environment. We believe so. And for the organizations that are committed to doing it, I think the proof is in the results. Yeah, I can see that. What do you think from your work with your clients are the trends in leadership that you're seeing? I mean, I know we talked at length about servant leadership, but what other things do you see that are happening? You know what? That's a tough question for me to answer because I tend to be fixated on the trends that I don't see happening that I believe should be happening. The most concerning one to me is the fact that most leaders have gone 10 years in a management role without receiving any form of of formal leadership development training. And so I think one of the emerging trends that, that we're pushing really hard that we feel will separate the winners from losers in the next decade is how early you start investing in your emerging leaders. So we have a number of clients where we've built emerging leadership programs where their high potentials are being identified very, very early on in their careers and are being trained as if they are leaders, even though they may not be leading anybody so that when they get into that position of leadership, they're not experiencing the imposter syndrome and the fear and the insecurity that they might not be ready for it because it's that fear and insecurity that has them model really bad behavior. If they've seen it before, they've had the practice reps, it's not foreign to them. They have the book smarts that most leaders have not been given. Those book smarts can become street smarts very, very quickly, where if you're just sort of thrown into it and you developed them instinctively, you can develop a lot of really bad habits. And that's why I say like, there's so many organizations where the unlearning that needs to happen is so much that it prevents us from even going in and starting any form of learning. I mean, one of the things I remember reading before the pandemic, so I was doing some research about leadership development, was the average age for someone receiving leadership development was 42. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, as a, as a sort of specialist in human behavior, you want to start to get people aware of their soft skills prior to 35, because 35, everything's kind of getting quite solid in your brain. Yeah. Before that, it's a bit more malleable. So you're absolutely right to identify you know, younger leaders who aren't quite there yet, but can start to build like the reps, if you like, so that it's not this huge, massive detangling, uncoupling, like massive existential crisis at 42 plus or whatever it is. That's just mad. And yeah, and it requires a shift, a mindset shift within the organization because the reason the training is withheld is it's, well, they got to prove themselves first before we make that investment. But then you're not helping them to become the leaders you want them to be. (laughs) Exactly. It's very short-sighted and very backwards thinking that I do believe is shifting. And I believe the pandemic has actually given a great assist to that shift. Because I know from our standpoint, a lot of the cautionary tales that we were out there pushing within our marketing were just that. They were cautionary tales. Nobody was really dealing with these issues. And when the pandemic hit, all that happened is the tide just went out and it exposed all of these problems that everybody had that were just covered up. We had about a three-week period where we had no idea what the impact of the pandemic was going to be on our business. And we've been on an insane growth trajectory ever since. Like The phone's been ringing off the hook because all of these theoretical problems we were out there saying, hey, you, you might have this. They're like, no, we actually have that now. That stuff you were talking about six months ago, I think we have that now. It's like, well, you always had it. Yes, yeah, just now you can see it. <laughs> yeah. 
And finally, thank you so much, first of all, for the conversation. It's always been a pleasure chatting to you. This is where we wrap things up in your crystallized words of wisdom to kind of share with the listeners. What are your three top tips for leaders of the digital age at the moment? Okay, it's a great question. Um, So it's a tough one. I'll give you that. At the risk of being repetitive, I'm going to go back to the three principles is they need to learn everything they can on psychological safety, emotional intelligence, and servant leadership. And it's not going to be enough for them to just read books and listen to podcasts and read blogs. They need to not rest until they can put it in an actionable framework where they know what is expected of them on a daily basis. They know the gaps, but if they can master those three things, if they can create an organization at the organizational level, an organization built on the principle of psychological safety, if they can fill that organization with emotionally intelligent individuals, because you can have the safest environment in the world. If somebody has low emotional intelligence, they're still going to be afraid to speak up. So you have to help grow that EQ. And then number three is really, really understand whether or not they can embrace this principle of servant leadership. Because those three, and the reason I recommend those three is those three are evergreen. Because we're struggling with adopting from a physical to a digital age right now, we're going to struggle with something else 20 years from now. But what hasn't changed is we as a species need to belong. We as a species need a certain amount of security and safety. And so a leader's ability to create those things, I don't know what else your job is other than that. And on that bombshell, that's a great way to wrap that up. I have to say thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure chatting with you. And I'm so glad I reached out. Oh, thank you. From a LinkedIn post. That's what I would suggest to everyone. Reach out to someone when they put a post that you think is brilliant because you never know what could happen. I agree. And I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know you and I'll chat today on the podcast and I'll put down the links to Culture Smith and to any other things that you think we want to share to the listeners as well. And thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I, re- I appreciate it as well. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support this podcast, please share it with others. Share it with your friends, your family, your colleagues, anyone you think who might benefit from listening. Post about it on social media as well or leave a rating and review and please subscribe to catch all the latest updates and episodes. You can also find us on Instagram at Still Loading Podcast. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Bye.